Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today, Brittany and I are back. Yeah, we are. With Wendy Bingham. From Extra Pelvic Not Rare, this is part two. If you haven't already heard part one, we do recommend that you go back and listen. There we talked with Wendy about all different aspects of extra pelvic endometriosis, including the definition, how the definition of extra pelvic and endometriosis in general needs an overhaul. We also talked about the ICD codes and just general problems that there are with getting accurate information on endometriosis. In today's episode, we're going to talk with Wendy on endometriosis in animals. <gasps> Ooh. Ooh, fascinating. Can't wait. And we're going to talk about systemic effects of endometriosis on the body and if there is association with heart disease. Fascinating and terrifying. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> we actually also talked about thoracic endometriosis, but this episode ended up being so long that Brittany and I had to split it into two episodes. And so the episode on thoracic endometriosis, we're going to air in another couple of months, and it's going to be its own episode with Wendy. So we're excited to welcome Wendy back to the podcast for a third episode. And it's just because Wendy has so much really great information to talk about. She's so knowledgeable that we literally, we only planned on doing one episode with Wendy, but it ended up turning into three because she just had so much really excellent, well-researched information to share with all of us. We're so excited to welcome Wendy Bingham back on our podcast. She is a gem in our community, and everything she's done for the community and her work with Extra Pelvic Not Rare is really invaluable. So we appreciate her taking the time to join us, and we hope that you can learn from her just as we have learned from her. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Now we want to get away from extra pelvic endometriosis in humans, and we want to take the conversation to endometriosis that has been found in some animals. So we know that endometriosis has been found in, for example, some female primates that have menstruation, such as the rhesus macaque monkeys. But interestingly, endometriosis has also been found in animals that do not have a regular cyclical hormone fluctuation with shedding of endometrial lining of the uterus. So in animals like the German Shepherd, Golden Retriever, and even the Guinea Pig, endometriosis has been found, and these animals don't have that shedding of the endometrial lining of the uterus. So therefore, these animals do not and cannot experience retrograde menstruation, which, as we talk in this podcast so often about some of the theories of endometriosis, and that a theory that endometriosis comes from these backwards flow of menstrual blood. And by the way, it has never been proven that endometriosis comes from retrograde menstruation. And in fact, there's many, many, many holes in the theory of retrograde menstruation. So 
it's pretty difficult to see how at this point it would ever be proven true. So interestingly, endometriosis has been found in animals that do not have retrograde menstruation, which I think is just fascinating. So Wendy, I would love if you could expand a little bit further about endometriosis in animals and just really what does this mean for endometriosis? Like, do you think we should care about these cases of endometriosis in animals? Do you think it's just like, eh, who cares? Or what do you think? Well, you're absolutely correct about everything that you said. I think, first off, we mentioned the retrograde, and we cannot refute or, or accept it. And the possibility that endometriosis is more than one disease and have more than one origin is really important. So, you know, I don't want to poo-poo the scientists that have been out there. And, and this is what they've done is worked on retrograde for a long time. I mean, that's how we evolve in our understanding, but it's also time to put that aside. And we really, really desperately need to look at things different because the information that's coming out is often recycled information. Yeah, I was really fascinated when I started discovering literature and this literature isn't produced in um, magazines and journals that we would normally encounter. And I think it's really important because it starts to look at things we know like persons that have endometriosis, they are born female, but they have a lack of a uterus or they have uterus obstructions. And I know people that are out there researching say, well, if they have uterine obstructions that supports that, they have retrograde and more problems. And in fact, I look at it the other way. The mutations that they have and the lack of the uterus may be the fact that the disease was laid down and those tissues didn't get where they needed to be to begin with during organogenesis as an embryo, or the fact that the tissue's there, but it took on a totally different specification, a specialty tissue than what it was intended to be. And that part of that metaplasia phenomenon that you hear. There's two different types of metaplasia. One is there could be a simplified metaplasia of a tissue that has yet to evolve into its permanent state. So for example, you have tissues that are laid down and it can change from epithelial into smooth muscle, or you have the aspect of a specialized tissue now and it's transformation. Oh my goodness. Dr. Martin, who was wonderful, gave me the terminology. And of course I don't have it in my brain today, but it's where we have specialized tissues that let's say I have a tissue that's part of a diaphragm and it evolves into another special tissue, endometriosis. Then it's end goal of being a specialized cell, which is as far as you can go away from stem cells to that specialized cell now changing what its destiny is. So this is all this new talk in the community. So I think when we look at the animals, we know that there are animals that menstruate and animals that don't menstruate. And I know for the lack of space, efficiency, costs, and to want to look at animals that are as close associated to us, they use primates, menstruators. And that makes sense if you were based on that theory that we want something that we can replicate that looks as close to us as possible. But we also know that they're using mice, right? And mice are having grafted lesions. Mice don't menstruate and we're taking the tissue from the uterus and grafting it to there. Well, why aren't we changing the way we look at the disease? We're going to completely take menstruation out of the equation. Is it a variable that it just happens that we menstruate and we have endo? And maybe they're not even related? 
But if they're related, why aren't we looking at the animal kingdom and looking at removing the variable of menstruation that now opens up a gamut of potential theories to understand this disease even more? And I think it's really important when we look at the guinea pig, when we look at the gold retriever and the German shepherd, these are anestrous animals. So as you said, they don't have a cycle. Yet we're seeing disease. And in a couple of these, the case studies, they're linked and you can have full access on the website. Some of these were found on the ovary and part of the ovary. But there's also one that was found as a distinct large mass. And sadly, that the German shepherd who was 11 years old passed away and they did a necropsy and they found a very large 20 by 25 centimeter lesion completely separate from the reproductive system that was behind the ovary, that was an endometriosis lesion. My thing is, is if we know that the disease is possibly present in these animals, why aren't we working with the veterinary programs? Why aren't we working with the zoos, the wildlife preserves, animal husbandry? Because in veterinary medicine, we know that cats and dogs, they usually, if they're going to have any intra-abdominal surgery, they're going to have it because they're getting spayed or neutered, right? And so some of these studies have given you real support of looking at metaplasia. And one study in particular, they found that there's a tendency in dogs and cats for metaplasia of the abdominal pelvic cavity and that the tissues, that's how they get tumors that evolve as a metaplasia. And so this really was pointing down their field, suggesting this that this is a possibility of a mechanism for the origin of the disease. So yes, taking out the period from the conversation, because I truly believe in persons with endometriosis that there is a whole bunch of possible causes for this disease. And we're focusing so much on that, that one aspect and still tying it into the fact that we have a period, you know, makes me cringe because we're seeing it and it's there. So why aren't we reaching out to these communities and becoming aware. And if they are in there doing dissections in veterinary school and they're seeing things, they can take samples and have them sent to a lab. There must be funding available to do this and bridge that gap between human medicine and animal medicine. And we might be able to learn a lot more about this disease. So I personally am all for it. My university has a large and a small animal program. I would really love to work with them. And let's not take grafted tissue because we can't assume that these lesions are from the uterus. And even though, you know, they've done the phenotyping of them and they suggest that, oh, it's the same. Some studies will say, well, the lesions are phenotypically like the lesions in the uterus. And then other studies are saying, no, it's not. It's completely different. So why don't we just cut the BS and just get down to it and start looking at animals? Is it more prevalent than we realize? I do have the authors, Baldy and his group in 2017, when they did the guinea pig, had stated the case presents it supports the hypothesis that endometriosis is a disease not at all related to the phenomenon of retrograde menstruation, but as a consequence of some alterations in the morphogenesis of the female genital system, and therefore could be found in any mammal. Now, their line of thinking is, probably on the concept of the rudimentary organs during organogenesis and how we can develop endometriosis from those remnants, right? The embryological remnants. So in another study, 
This one was in regards to the German Shepherd with a large mass that was unattached to the reproductive system performed by Palva and his associates in 2015. And I love it because they clarified that the female who had never been spayed had never undergone any kind of birth control to prevent reproduction or had any abnormal elevated estrogen levels. He has some really interesting findings that I think we need to really consider in humans. So again, he reemphasizes the first paragraph about the potential origin of the disease and why, quote, the occurrence of endometriosis caused by cell implantation is unlikely in dogs because dogs lack the endometrial desquamation observed in women during menses and in non-human primates during the diestrous phase, as you've elegantly pointed out earlier, Amy. He also clarifies much more specific now. However, the salomic mesothelium is again that germ layer that we talk about that a lot of tissues come from and say the musculoskeletal system comes from mesothelium. A lot of the respiratory lining, the abdominal pelvic lining comes from that germ layer that eventually develops into certain parts of our body system. It says that it has high transformation capacity in bitches. I love to be able to use that word out loud. Morphological changes in the celomic mesothelium as cysts and tumors are relatively common compared to other species. Therefore, the celomic metaplasia theory of the parietal peritoneum better supports the development of the ectopic endometrial tissue in this case. This theory has been suggested to explain the genesis of endometriosis in women and men outside the reproductive age, as well as endometriosis in distant extrapelvic organs. So, so to put that in human speak for non-scientists, <laughs> right? So basically yes. what you were saying is that the endometriosis that was found in this bitch, <laughs> so funny when you said that. Now the endometriosis that was found in this dog and the other case of endometriosis is a really good example of how scientists believe that really retrograde menstruation cannot play a role in the development of the endometriosis in these animals, in these cases, but it seems it's much more likely that the development of endometriosis in these cases could come from something like metaplasia, which as we said, was the change from one type of cell to another type of cell. And you were saying with the germ layer, this tissue is very prevalent in the body that is often involved in the areas where endometriosis is found. Yes, correct. correct. And it can't eliminate the possibility that yes, I think lymphatic and hematologic spread is very, very possible. The question is, is the origin of the spread? Is it coming from the bone marrow itself? Or is it coming from stem cells within the uterus? These are all questions we have to ask. But again, I truly believe that endometriosis is many It's a large umbrella from a disease that has multiple origins and as a result may have different phenotypes based on their origins. There's a lot we don't know, but at the end of the day, it all comes full circle to say, we've got a lot of avenues that I've honestly, we've never looked at. And I truly believe this has so much potential. Why not invest? If we find out that it isn't very prevalent, then fair enough. But if we don't go down that avenue and open the door, we won't know. And as the one author already pointed out in here, the first author with the guinea pig of saying, it might be much more common than we realize. We do know in veterinary medicine, again, it's very limited to 
how much you're going to see in an actual surgery. And they're going to be very young when they have their tubes tied, you know, when they're spayed and they're neutered, it's going to be very, very young. Whereas, you know, during necropsy and vet school, they may see more and maybe the disease looks a little different post-mortem, but we also know animal husbandry. There's a lot that goes on in that when you're doing butchering, um, as horrible as that sounds, but we also have wildlife refuges. We have the zoos that will do surgery, you know, on big cats and stuff. And why not? Why not look? Why not take a little sample? Somebody's got to pay for it. I understand that. It all comes down to money at the end of the day. But I truly believe that this is something that we should be looking at much closer. And it might take longer to gather the information, but let's take the period out of it. Full stop with that. I love the idea of looking at animals that already have endometriosis naturally, because at this Mm -hmm. time, you know, what scientists are doing is that they're artificially giving mice endometriosis in order to study endometriosis and mice don't naturally have endometriosis. And as you said, they're taking a piece of the uterus and they're going and sewing that into the peritoneum or they're grafting that on to kind of quote unquote, give them endometriosis. So why don't we actually work with animals that naturally have endometriosis? Now, I have to say, Wendy, like, I absolutely love your pipe dream to get every medical specialty (laughs) to do with animals involved, like the veterinarians and the zoos, and of course, not to experiment on these animals, but to naturally take advantage of surgeries that are already naturally happening. So I love your dream. Well, I, I mean, I think we have to laugh because we can barely get doctors human doctors and human medicine work (laughs) together. Like we can barely get the GI specialist to talk to the gynecologist at this point. And so (laughs) the idea of getting like the veterinarian when it's tying the tubes of the cats or the dogs that come in to just take a quick glance for endometriosis, I think it's an absolutely lovely idea. But as you said, the funding and education that it's such a monumental undertaking that that would involve. Yeah. And I think, you know, to think about it, we do know, you know, guinea pigs have what an average of, I'm going to throw out their five years, I think is what I was reading in their lifespan. But we also know that unless somebody is creating their own pet cemetery in their backyard, that, you know, their deceased remains are given to the veterinary to dispose of. But knowing this with guinea pigs, the size, and, you know, they're pretty prevalent pet, that these are things that maybe postmortem can be done. Would you give consent for us to take a peek? Again, you have to have somebody that's willing to take the time but it does lend to having a guinea pig that's really small and there's a high frequency of them that you could just do a quick and just take a look. I just wonder if there's got to be a way that we can bridge a gap here. There's got to be some approaches that we can take to try to improve it. And again, you grab it when it's naturally occurring and say, whoa, what's going on? And then get the history, you know, was this animal, did they have normal hormone levels? Were they treated with anything prior? Those are things that I would really love to see. Did they shriek every time they were in the litter box having a bowel movement? (laughs) Exactly. You know, how did your animal animal act every day 28 of the month? You know, (laughs) well, again, they don't have that cycle like we do, right? And in the bleeding that you see isn't from, you know, some of them, they'll have some leakage from the vulva and stuff, but it's not truly the shedding of the lining. I'm really curious to see how anybody would pick up this area of investigation and run with it. I have a question about this. So, you know, I know with endometriosis, we have different types of endometriosis. We have deep infiltrating endometriosis, superficial endometriosis, endometrioma, 
already within humans, we see various forms of endometriosis. Then we have endometriosis in different locations. It's really interesting, all the different appearances, and it's really different how varied endometriosis can be. Now, what I'm wondering when it has to do with this animal endometriosis, how are they diagnosing these animals with endometriosis? Is the diagnostic criteria the same? Is it also that it's endometrial-like glands and stroma? Yes. So the standard criteria, it was the same as with humans for abdominal pelvic disease. I'll make that clear too. Um, we also know, you know, you hear of stromal endometriosis without the glands. And when it comes to respiratory disease, there's significantly more stromal disease than there is with the presence of glands. And again, that's where that immunohistochemical concept comes into play because frequently glands are missing in thoracic disease. And again, that drives the whole diagnostic criteria for thoracic disease is, are we looking at changing the diagnostic pattern? So when you look under a microscope and you see what now they're realizing that those that have, say, have a lung collapse, that's catamineal, they're seeing aggregates of stromal cell present in those that have a catamineal pneumothorax versus those male and female people that have a spontaneous pneumothorax, it's a primary pneumothorax they don't have this aggregated cluster of these stromal cells that are sensitive to hormones, estrogen and progesterone. Down the line with animals that right now, they're still using the same diagnostic criteria as we do for endometriosis in general. Because the myths out there is it occurs in menstruators. And like you said, is through how many presentations that we know it's been found in fetuses. We know it's been found in people born without a uterus. We also know it's in cis males. And for the majority of males, we know that the disease is located and they believe that it's stimulation of the rudimentary organs that we're developing with the male and the female early on. And then the testosterone comes in during early development, the first three months, there's that signal from testosterone that says, we're going to go ahead and produce using our androgens that are male oriented, we're going to produce the male reproductive system. But now we have identified just a couple of endometriosis in people that were born male at birth, that the disease is not associated with the rudimentary female organs that were shut down when the testosterone became prevalent, like say during their third month of an embryo. So that's really interesting, but that's a whole nother discussion. Let's move on to cardiovascular disease and endometriosis, because I saw on your website that you have a very long and in-depth article that you've put together on the association between endometriosis and cardiovascular disease, which I found really, really interesting. And I think it really goes to show this kind of idea once again, that endometriosis is not just quote unquote, a bad period. And that endometriosis is a full body disease and that endometriosis can have systemic effects on the full body. So can you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about this association between endo and cardiovascular disease? I love to. It's a complicated area to talk about because we know that some of the medical management that we use contributes to cardiovascular disease potential by suppressing estrogen production from the ovaries. And we know that estrogen is heart protective and it's vascular wall protective. Um, there's been a few studies out in the last couple of years, and I'm really excited by, about their research. And it directs you more towards a direct association of endometriosis and not an associated inflammatory process that adds to the cardiovascular disease component. 
So a few years ago, they did a study, the nurses study, and it had 116,000 participants. And they monitored people for the progression of cardiovascular disease. And in particular, they monitored people who had endometriosis. And over a 20-year period, they were able to identify persons with endometriosis that had a higher risk of cardiovascular events, high blood pressure, heart attacks, the need for stent placements, um, which is really fascinating because, you know, it, it points out the association, not a cause and effect. And a couple studies that have right now very small sample sizes, we're looking to determine whether endometriosis has much more of a direct impact on promoting cardiovascular disease. And the results are actually very fascinating. Two different studies looked at how well the vasculature can dilate. So we know hypertension, when you look at the top number and bottom number of your blood pressure, it's a systole and the diastole. And the systole number is when it's contracting in the narrow, the narrowing of the vasculature. The diastole is the number of how well the vasculature re-expands and it opens so that less pressure is given as the blood passes through the vascular system, the arteries. So two different studies looked at force-mediated dilation. And what that represents is those in endometriosis, do they have a lack of the ability to the artery walls or the, the capillaries, everything from you know, the smaller to the larger vessels, able to redilate? And what is the impact that's going to have on people with endometriosis? So in one study, they had two groups, and they had a group of people that had non-endometriosis, benign gynecological diseases. And then they had the other group of people who had endometriosis-related surgeries. And there was really no difference between the samples by age or any comorbidities. And what they found, they did a two-year study, and they found that those people with endometriosis, so before the disease was excised, they found that they had higher vascular resistance that was subclinical. In other words, they didn't have outward signs, high blood pressure, things that were suggested that they already had cardiovascular disease in play. So they had set up these studies that they measured that flow velocity, but they found that these people with endometriosis had higher flow rates. In other words, the blood was going through like faster and there was more resistance there. In other words, the vasculature wasn't responding as well, even at rest. So they underwent surgeries in these two groups. And after two years, they retested these people. And the people that had benign gynecological conditions actually had an increase in their value. So they actually had a little bit more development of atherosclerotic symptoms, like presentation, but it was subclinical, wasn't detected by regular blood pressure measures. It was only detected by specific way that you assess for early onset atherosclerosis. And by the way, this is the most accurate way to detect early cardiovascular changes in the system. Then they compared the persons with endometriosis. And after surgery, two years later, by removing, excising the lesion, the entire lesion, they found that their blood flow levels, the force of velocity was lowered below the standard of those in the control group that didn't have endometriosis. So they 
we're hypothesizing that by removing the lesion, there's something to do with the lesion itself, not just an association, but the lesion itself may contribute to the changes in this preclinical level of vascular atherosclerosis. So what they looked at is they had a special called asymmetrical dimethylene arginine. And what they found that the values of this chemical was higher in people with endometriosis than people without endometriosis. So we go to more specifics. When they looked at these inflammatory markers with endometriosis, there's certain things that they found that these inflammatory markers were higher, but also these arginine levels were higher. And therefore it created to that restriction of the vessels to redilate. They believe that the actual endometriosis lesions themselves, because they're within the body, are secreting these chemicals. And these chemicals are the driver of this arginine. So the asymmetrical dimethylene arginine is a substance that is present in the body and it reduces the amount of nitrous oxide, hang on with me, nitrous oxide production inside the vascular wall. So the endothelial walls inside the capillaries, arteries, this nitrous oxide production plays a role in how well the vessel dilates. So if you have high levels of this asymmetrical dimethylene arginine, the higher that is, the more suppression of nitrous oxide production is, the more suppressed nitrous oxide production is, the less the wall responds. So there's much more rigidity within the vascular walls. And this is something that they're looking at, investigating further, is what are the components of the vessels themselves, the endometriosis lesions, that's triggering this progressive decline that's leading to this early rigidity of the arteries. And I think it's really important because a couple of the scientists that are involved in this are saying this may be another one of those triggers to look at people who may have silent disease that present with this preclinical atherosclerotic change have a high risk of endometriosis. So just like what's happening in the thoracic endometriosis world of a pocket of people that are picking up on it and going, okay, this person had a lung collapse. Let me ask a couple questions and let's possibly see if they have asymptomatic endometriosis or they have undiagnosed endometriosis that could be causing infertility or can be leading to other complications that we don't know about, but it's silent. It's a very fascinating area to look into because we know that the current treatments are, again, shutting down estrogen, medical management, and that estrogen plays a huge role in cardiovascular protection. We also know that when you use ablation, you're burning the tops of tissue and if the tissue, if the lesion is only one to two millimeters deep, that's great. Okay, you may have eliminated it, but you've left the eschar there. You've left the debris there. And now the immune system's got to clean it up. But if the immune system is not functioning well, you have a lot of inflammation, it's just going to cyclically continue to drive that inflammation because it's not able to remove the debris. Then you have disease that if you ablate it, the disease is still active. Now you have the endometriosis still present. So even though we've treated the disease, the endometriosis lesion itself is still there and it still could be a direct driver of cardiovascular disease. We have yet to figure this out. But when you look at the number one morbidity and the number one mortality of persons assigned female at birth, we know that it's the number one problem. We also know endometriosis 
is a one in 10 ratio. So I think we need to head down that route because right now what we're doing, I honestly feel like we may be doing more harm than good. We're treating them with medical management for the then and now, the then and now. And we're not thinking about what's happening with these people with endometriosis that are younger. And we may be causing preclinical cardiovascular changes that when they are in their um, late 30s, early 40s, they start to manifest. Some of these things are irreversible. And so we really have to look at the way we're treating the disease. So the study that was really fascinating when they removed the lesions and they did follow them for two years. And I think that we need to have a bigger sample, obviously. And we also need to look at other confounding variables. So nutrition, exercise, you know, things like that, that can contribute to how we interpret the results. But I think that this really opened up the next step in looking at endometriosis as a disease with systemic fallout and not maybe as much association, but much more of a direct contribution. You know, everything that you just explained, Wendy, is really interesting. And I think it's something that, like you said, it's another avenue that we have to go down. What is the association either directly or indirectly with endometriosis and cardiovascular disease? So I'm going to try to sum up a little bit what you just talked about, because that was a really deep rabbit hole that was really fascinating, but had a lot of, I think, facets and tangents to it. So what I think I heard you saying, and please correct me if I don't get this 100% correct, but I think there's two things you were saying. First is with endometriosis, there are treatments that we do, such as putting the body into medical menopause, which is then reducing or even shutting off temporarily the estrogen that is, you know, coming from the ovaries. Or, you know, we can have a hysterectomy with a full oophorectomy, I think it's called, where the ovaries get removed as well. And so once again, the body's not producing this estrogen. And we know that estrogen does have a protective effect when it comes to do with cardiovascular disease. We always think estrogen is bad, but estrogen has some really, really good qualities and protective aspects in our body. So something like, you know, having our estrogen lowered for a long period of time could potentially be contributing down the line to cardiovascular disease. So there could be that kind of indirect association with the endometriosis. One of the other treatments that you mentioned that is very common with endometriosis is ablation surgery, which is a superficial burning of the lesions. And with ablation surgery, we know that it can leave behind thermal damage in the tissue. So it can leave behind eschar, as you said, which is like a thermal damage to the tissue. And then the immune system has to come in and clean this up, which can cause an immune response. And then that can indirectly contribute to, so via that method, endometriosis can be indirectly associated with inflammation that is contributing to cardiovascular disease. And then the other thing that I heard you talking about was more of a direct association with endometriosis and cardiovascular disease. I'm probably going to get a little hazy here in the details because it was very scientific, but you mentioned that scientists were looking at two different ways to see the connection with endometriosis and cardiovascular disease. Now, One of the ways they were looking had to do with the constriction and the opening and the constriction of the blood vessels and measuring that. And they were looking at people with endometriosis and people with other gynecological pathologies. And the restrictions, the vascular restrictions and not being opened, the generalized term that's being used for all sakes and purposes is arterial stiffness. 
So okay. there's greater arterial stiffness that isn't measured with the blood pressure per se yet. That is um, right. It was the yeah the preclinical. So like not seen on the blood arterial test, but a very accurate way to measure that the cardiovascular disease is going downhill and is going in that detrimental direction. Yes. Okay. Okay. You are so good. Oh, okay. So let's see if I still get this right or not, but they were looking at basically the arterial stiffness and what they saw was that people had surgery for their gynecological pathologies and the people with endometriosis had excision. Then they went and followed up with them two years later and they saw that the people who did not have endometriosis, who had the surgery for the other gynecological pathologies, their arterial stiffness actually got worse. It went up. The people with endometriosis who had excision, which is the complete removal of the endometriosis lesions, their arterial stiffness actually improved and it went down and it got better, which is suggesting that endometriosis is playing a direct effect on the arterial stiffness of, well, the arteries, that's why it's arterial stiffness. So it's playing a direct effect on these subclinical cardiovascular markers. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. And then they could argue whether that is direct or indirect, because if you take the lesion out, well, you're taking out generalized inflammation, correct? And there hasn't been a study yet to decipher between ablation and excision and whether there's a difference in that arterial stiffness that occurs. And I think my suggestion is, yes, you're going to see a difference with excision, but I think they need to look at the suggestions by the surgeons that it's the fact that there are these inflammatory markers. We know that that specific component, the asymmetric dimethylene arginine is elevated when you have the lesions present, but they feel that there's a direct relationship between the lesion secretions and the amount of this substance being produced. And the higher that substance level is, the more inhibition there is on nitrous oxide production in the vascular walls. That is the direct result in opening up the vessels. They're seeing that by excising the lesion, and they found that these levels were low, reduced in relationship. So when the lesion was removed, endometriosis removed from the body, they're seeing that the levels of this substance significantly diminished. And therefore that substance has less impact on the walls, the lining of the walls are able to dilate better because the bedding, the endothelial lining in the vasculature is able to increase the amount of nitrous oxide produced. So therefore the amount of arterial stiffness went down. So lesion taken out, arterial stiffness goes down. The other thing is, it was the mention that we, we talked about, you know, removing the uterus and the ovaries and the impact on the cardiovascular disease. I know recently there's a lot going on in the literature that's suggesting even just simply removing the uterus will impact cardiovascular disease, which is fascinating because the uterus doesn't produce estrogen. So how that plays a role in cardiovascular disease is something that needs to be investigated. And also when we think about current myths of, well, let's take the uterus out. Even if we leave the ovaries, well, let's just take the uterus out because we have retrograde menstruation and that's going to stop the disease. Is that the thing that we're doing again, treating today, knowing what the ramification can be tomorrow, 10 years, 20 years down the line for people? I think that we're really at this crossroad. We have to really look at does the means outweigh the benefit or the harm? And we have this oath, oh, do no harm. And we really have to re examine where we are with that. And 
is accession the way to go? And I think for some people, absolutely, in this progressive disease, we really need to be looking at this and saying, take the disease out. There's nothing left over to create inflammation in the body. And there's no risk of increased residual active disease that ablation can't get to. And so therefore treating it as chemically inducing us in menopause also has these ramifications on cardiovascular disease. I'm at that peak right now in my life. This is a big focus. And because I've seen a huge change in my body, we need to address it. Number one, morbidity, number one, mortality, and 10% of the population of people assigned female at birth, that's pretty significant. And think about the amount of costs that it's the economic impact of this disease. I really would love to zoom to the future right now, you know, 50 years from now, hopefully won't take that long. That might not even be enough time, 100 years from now, 300 years from now. But I would love to just be in the future and see all of the research that like if we had the money, if you had the money to do all of these different studies and investigations, like all these things that we've talked about today, everything from getting the veterinary schools and the zoos and the different animal sites to be able to look for endometriosis in the animals, to be able to study naturally occurring lesions in animals that do and do not menstruate as well as having the money to do continuing cardiovascular studies and really hammer out what the connection is with endometriosis and cardiovascular disease. In our talk, I just see that there's just so many doors that need to be opened and gone through and investigated that have to do with endometriosis. It is just the issues with endometriosis is so much bigger. And I feel like the medical community and literature right now is just really stuck. I mean, You know, I love going in the literature and just almost everything you see is about retrograde menstruation and how does the endometrial bits stick? And they're just really still trying to prove that. And it's like, yeah, it'd be cool if we could prove or not prove it because it would be great to get a like 100% confirmation of if that really were the cause, which is looking very unlikely. But, you know, it'd be great to have a 100% confirmation of where this disease comes from, or at least one of the ways that the disease comes from since it's starting to seem that it's from a variety of multifactorial causes. But I just think sometimes the literature is just so focused on these topics. They're closed in a box about retrograde menstruation or this or that when there's just so many avenues that they could be going down. There's just so many things that we could study. So many, so many, so many. And then there they are just like injecting rats and mice with endometriosis and trying to be like, oh, if this thing happens, does the blood stick? Does it mutate? into? It's like, oh my God, get over it. People just go on to look at something different and open your minds. So it's kind of my summary of everything that we talked about today is I wish you had all the money in the world and that you could be in charge. You have amazing ideas and amazing insight to endometriosis, the biology, the patient experience. And you're doing such incredible, incredible work. And I just want to say that I'm so honored that you took the time to come on the show today. And I think all the listeners really feel the same way that I think we've learned so much from you. And I I wish you could be like a super billionaire and that I know you would crack the codes of this disease. It would be like Da Vinci Code, Wendy Endo Code. That's what it would be like. (laughs) Well, Amy, I think one thing, to close with, as you mentioned, is that we don't know and we need to think outside the box. But at the same time, we can't 
wait to figure it out. We can't, we cannot solve the problem or the origins right away. And regardless of that, as we were discussing earlier, is the urgency of the disease and the number of people with atypical presentations is beyond urgent now. I mean, literally, it's a crisis. And many people have said that endometriosis has been a disease in crisis for for decades. But we can't wait for them to figure this stuff out. We have to jump in with our feet now. And we need to change the curriculum. We need to change everything about how this disease is presented and educated to practitioners from the basics of their postgraduate education through their training into every clinical field within medicine so that we are diagnosing people faster with this disease. But we can't wait for those theories to be supported or refuted. We need to definitely branch out. Yes. And that was great. We talked about that today. The urgency is, is we can't let people continue to go for years and years and years and misdiagnosed and not really look at the disease for what it is. And so, you know, coming in with different eyes, I think is really important in research. And I commend the people that have been doing research 30, 40, 50 years, a whole life dedicated to the disease. But I also think that you need to bring in new blood and people that have a different perspective of the disease. That may be, again, I'm building a science board that is, we have a gynecologist on my science board, but we are also bringing in other disciplines that have viewed the disease very differently, particularly surgeons that are seeing the disease and have not seen it in that way. They have seen the disease as something other than a disease of the reproductive organs. So yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. I know we can talk forever. You're a wonderful host. You amaze me at how much you can retain and how well you can articulate to the audience things that we're talking about. When I get going, I stick with the complex wording and and you catch it for me. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. And hopefully in the future, we'll do something together. Absolutely. I think it'd be really fun to continue working together. And it has been so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Wendy. So of course, I'll put in the show notes where you can reach Wendy because Wendy has a Facebook group, has an Instagram, has a website all around extra pelvic, not rare. So I'm going to put those right in the show description and the show notes today. So you'll have access, full access to Wendy. So Wendy, thank you so much on behalf of all the listeners. We have been amazed and astounded and fascinated by all of your knowledge. And we thank you so much because I know you have endometriosis. I know you have other chronic illnesses as well as do I, and it's really, really exhausting to advocate. It's really exhausting to do the research. It's really, really tiring. And I know after part one, you and I both passed out (laughs) and then we texted each other later and we were like, I can't move. And I was like, I'm the same. And I think we'll probably just go pass out now for the rest of the afternoon and not get up until tomorrow morning. So the sacrifices we make to, (laughs) to talk and advocate about endometriosis, but it's been really, really fun. 